be prepared to look into the word. Father, again, we are thankful that your word is true. It is indeed a firm foundation for us in a world that's been constructed around us that is uh, built on quicksand. Uh, Lord, how we thank you that your word, unchanging, eternal, uh, that is pure, it is true, it is that which uh, will guide us and inform us. And so, Lord, we pray that today we might have teachable hearts and that your word would uh, find its way into our hearts and bring forth the fruit that you desire to bring. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Over the past 12 weeks, as you have been working through your workbook, you've come across some amazing accounts of what God did in certain people's lives. For example, there was the pastor whose marriage was on the rocks. Uh, just a very sad marriage where the pastor and his wife weren't even talking to each other, and yet uh, they would still go to church and put on this front. And he finally came to the point of being honest and confessed his sins of his faithfulness, his unfaithfulness about his dishonesty with her, and they were reconciled in a beautiful way, bringing a new chapter to this very sad relationship for so many years. Then there was the wife whose heart had grown cold toward Christ. She had been a Christian for many years, but she had just been giving lip service to her, her uh, loyalty to Christ. And she, at one time, things were so bad in her heart and in her life, she said, I'm just going to contemplate divorce as a way to get out of this mess in her life. And she finally brought to the point of God showing her how wrong that was. She repented of her sins of pride and of bitterness toward her husband that she had been holding to all these years. And she was delivered from that bondage that she had had for years and years of taking sleeping pills. And what an amazing work that God did in her life. Then there's the husband who had a PhD, a very successful gentleman, a very smart man who for years had been hiding two significant sins. Uh, the sins happened to be the fact that he cheated on his exam, his final exam for his PhD. And he also had stolen money in the subsequent years after that uh, from a company in which he was able to uh, charge more money than he should have for various expenses and things. And he was brought to the point where no longer did he fear the consequences, but he was going to go and make confession of those sins. So he did to his doctoral advisor and to his former boss, driving hours out of town to go and look these people up and make these confessions. And God brought about an incredible peace, an incredible outcome of his willingness to take care of those things in his life that he had avoided. Now, in looking at these, and there are many others mentioned in the workbook, it does seem to me that, that what is the one common denominator in all those stories? I'm convinced it is the power of God's word working in these people's hearts. They began to take and hear the word and they began to act on the word and it resulted in dramatic demonstrations of change. And this morning, I want us to think about this idea of the impact of the Word of God in our hearts. If we're going to see us ever become to the point of which our hearts are revived or that we have been revived and we're going to sustain some sense of, of ongoing revival, then clearly the Word of God must play a vital part in that. And so I'd encourage you to open your Bible to Psalm 119. 
the 119th Psalm, not 19, but 119. And I'm going to preach on this entire Psalm today, 176 verses. Uh, we are campfires canceled, so we have nothing that's going to prevent us from just carrying through a wonderful exposition of these texts. But seriously, uh, this is a massive poem, and it is an intricately constructed piece of poetic writing. It, it's an amazingly complex uh, 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 psalm because the author has written an acrostic poem. And by that, I mean, if you looked at it in the Hebrews, you would, you, Hebrew language, you would look and see the first line of the first stanza. Every word that begins that line all starts with the first letter of the alphabet, uh, Aleph, which is A. And so you read across at every line there. And then the second stanza has the second letter of the alphabet starting with every word and continues on every stanza. It's very carefully crafted. Why? Well, I believe it was written by the author who has been so highly impacted by the Word of God. It has changed his life. It has impacted his understanding of himself and his world and brought him to bring changes in his life and encouraged him. And there's no denying that it has really been transformative for him. And he wants to now compose it such a way that someone else can remember this and actually be able to recite it by memory. I think that's how it's constructed the way it is. And he is longing to see the Word of God continue to impact his heart and other people as well. And so this psalm captures the heart of a person who desires ongoing learning. They want the Word of God to continue to have an impact in them. And they want the spiritual vitality that comes only when we stay in the Word and know God through the Word. And so I would like us to look at just the fifth stanza. I had to pick one and so... It mentions the word revive a couple times. So let's read Psalm 119, beginning of verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach which I dread for your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. I want to consider a couple things here as we look at this stanza. First is I want us to think about if we are going to be a people who see the process of revival be sustained within us. If God has been working in us, how do we sustain that work like he has been these last several weeks? Well, I'd like to suggest, first of all, we need to maintain a vibrant, growing relationship with God. Maintain a vibrant, growing relationship with God. You'll notice the first thing in this stanza, verse 33, as you continue to read through it, you notice that the stanza contains a number of requests from the author. It's primarily made up of prayers. And it makes perfect sense because the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, when added to any verb, 
makes that verb what they call causative. Now what that means is, literally it means you translate it this way. It says, cause me to be taught, O Lord, or cause me to understand, or cause me to walk in the path of your commandments. In other words, the psalmist really has a strong desire for the Lord to keep teaching him in a continuous, ongoing way. And he longs not merely just to have intellectual knowledge about God, but he wants to know God. And he wants God to instruct his heart. He wants to have a personal knowledge of God. And it seems to me that this is what revival is all about, isn't it? It's not about having all kinds of of, of various experiences and manifestations of all sorts of, of emotions and things. No, it is about seeking God, his presence, his blessings, his manifestation in our lives, in our being com- in communion with him. That's what it means to have our hearts revived. And that's indeed what this psalm psalmist longed for. I don't know about you, but uh, it's been my prayer that God would revive my heart and our hearts during these past few weeks. And I was really looking forward to gathering around a fire tonight and have people share. I hope you'll uh, not um, forget to come next Sunday night. But I hope you're going to share some of your stories, not just around that campfire, but with other people that you know. Because if, if indeed God has been drawing your heart closer to God, and you have begun to be, realize how great and how wonderful and how incredibly blessed you are to know God, then it seems to me that's something that's be worth sharing with somebody that you know. Because revival, let's be honest, it's not meant to just be a one-time event in your life. And then it just remains in your past. But if we really have understanding of what it means to be revived, that is, we are drawn closer to God in a very real and vital way, we want that to be an ongoing process that we remain close to God. And how do we do that? Well, we've seen those steps this past several weeks, haven't we? The idea of earnestly seeking God by humbling ourselves before him. By admitting that we are not people who are in charge, God is the one who's great and in charge. And honestly confessing our sin before him, forgiving other people, uh, clearing our conscience in whatever it took to do that. And then in also taking steps of obedience and many other things, just basic kinds of responses. And here's my challenge for us. It seems to me if God has been working, and I hope and pray he has, Let's keep on seeking God. Let's press on to know the Lord. Let's continue to earnestly ask him, Lord, cause my heart to to want to still uh, seek you every day. That you would teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Again, we're saying this is more than his head knowledge. It's something in which we are seeking him to know him, and that is we're going to talk to him in prayer. We're going to keep a a regular habit of prayer in our lives, praying with ourselves in our closet, praying with our family, praying with our, uh, our church family, asking God for help, relying on him for help, admitting that we need help, and remaining in that particular frame of mind. When we pray and ask God to teach us, Do you realize that makes you vulnerable at that moment? 
And maybe that's why some of us don't really aren't seeking God as earnestly as we could. It's because we seek God with a sense of caution. Well, Lord, I really want revival. I want you to work in my heart. I want you to, to make your Holy Spirit move among us. But I really would like you to do it in such a way that you promise in advance that you're only going to do the things that we've always done them a certain way. And those things will carry forward like that. Or, Lord, I want the Holy Spirit to come in mighty power, but only if you're going to give me a prior guarantee that you're not going to make me somehow deal with something embarrassing in my life. Lord, I want you to come in Holy Spirit power, but work that revival in such a way that I can still be in control and have my life as comfortable as the way I'd like it. Or some of us may be saying, Lord, work your work of revival, but I want it to be neat and tidy I want it to be something that leads to socially acceptable things so that I can fit in with my friends and not be seen to be someone who sticks out of the crowd. Or some of us say, Lord, work in your mighty power and come Holy Spirit, but would you please change other people and make them like me? Those prayers are prayers that what? We're not really asking for a revival. We're asking for what? Just keep things the way they are. And so when we pray in the first point here, the idea of maintaining that close relationship to God, it's saying, Lord, do whatever you need to do. Shake things up. I just want to know you. Let's keep that. And secondly, I'd like to also suggest it might be helpful if we maintain a humble, teachable spirit. A humble, teachable spirit. Notice what he says there. In the text, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will observe it to the end. Obviously, a great obstacle to any kind of lifelong learning is for someone to have an attitude that says, listen, I don't need anything of what you've got to give me. I know what I know, and I know everything I need to know. Thank you very much. And learning whatever you're trying to teach me is a waste of my time. That person has a what? Closed mind. I, don't, I can't be bothered with anything you're trying to sell me. Well, if you have a student like that, whatever money you get paid as a teacher, believe me, I don't know if it's worth it. If you have a student with a closed mind, okay, you can have that student enrolled in a new, modern, excellent facility, a school building that is just state-of-the-art classroom. You can have a teacher that's highly qualified, highly motivated, who is skilled and who's won Teacher of the Year Award and all that kind of thing and, and supplied with the latest computers and, and uh, the best of textbooks. You can have all those things, but that student will not learn anything if that student, what, refuses and has no desire to learn. So what is the point? Heart attitude is a critical component of anyone truly being taught and learning. And that principle, of course, is true in the spiritual realm. A revived heart is a heart that is continually becoming aware of the need to remain humble and readily admits that we, that we need to be instructed on a continuing basis. That there's a need to keep learning. We have not arrived. Notice the psalmist says, Lord, teach me the way of your statutes. 
Teach me the way of your statutes. Now, a prayer like that conveys this ongoing reliance upon God, that he was going to help him with his limitations. And the psalmist realized he still had so much to learn. He needed to remain under the tutelage of his divine instructor. I find it interesting that Jesus, in talking to his disciples one day, he had a lot of people around him who were uh, all different kinds of approaches in dealing with God and trying to understand spiritual things. And there were some that sort of were the know-it-alls, you know. And Jesus says, listen, God hides the truths of the kingdom. This is Matthew 11. He hides the truths of the kingdom to those who are intelligent and wise. Meaning what? In their own eyes. That they think they know everything. They can't be taught anything. And he was talking, of course, about the religious leaders of his day. But he says, to those who are humble like children, he promises to reveal the truth about himself. Think about it. One of the greatest obstacles to to revival, one of the greatest obstacles to the continuing of the process of revival is what? Is pride. Pride. Listen to this verse from Psalm 138, verse 6. We are told that through, though the Lord is exalted, he regards the lowly, but the haughty or the proud he knows from afar. What's that saying? It's saying that God has no intention of going anywhere near the proud. In other words, he keeps the arrogant at an arm's distance from him. If revival is drawing near, if God drawing near to his people, then guess what? We need to be a people who are humble before him and who are indeed looking to him as the one who needs to be teaching us. We need spiritual help. We're over our heads when it comes to gaining an accurate perception of God, accurate perception of ourselves. We need his help. Some people rely on their own understanding. They are people who draw their own conclusions about God. They draw their own conclusions about themselves and their experiences in this world based on what makes sense to them or whatever they've heard in the media or in social media or wherever on the Internet. But look at verse 38 of this psalm, Psalm 119. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. What's the psalmist asking for here? He's asking God to keep applying the word to his heart in such a way that he would then live a life that truly fears and respects God, lives in a, in a sense of awe, holy awe and reverence for God, not other people. Other people are not more important to this person, but God is. Having God by his spirit apply the truth of scripture to our hearts so that we would live out of a humble heart that reverently fears the Lord and we're more increasingly concerned with pleasing the Lord rather than somehow gaining the approval of other people. Wow, now that would be an attitude to sustain the process of revival. I wonder if sometimes we're asking God to teach us but asking him to teach us is with an asterisk that says, well, teach me unless it's something that's going to be difficult for me to do. 
or if it's going to require too much of me, then I don't really have an interest in going that far. I just want you to teach me the little things, the simple things. But being taught by God means he has the opportunity to teach us through trials, through difficulties, through disappointments, through all kinds of things that he brings into our lives. That is the way God will teach us through his word. And indeed, if you read Psalm 119, you'll see there are many times the psalmist was up and down. There are many difficulties he's dealing with in the midst of his desire to be taught. Thirdly, I want to continue on here. Another way to sort of sustain the idea of the process of revival is to continue to apply God's truth to every aspect of life. Every aspect of life. He says here to um, give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Verse 34. Understanding here is not just facts. Understanding is insight. Understanding that there are certain things you're not going to understand about God and have insights about God unless there's something that God does to change us on the inside. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we learn that if we don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and our hearts have never been changed and transformed by the gospel, then we are very devoted to, as a natural person, to just accept None of the things of the Spirit of God, because what? It does, it's foolishness. It doesn't make sense. Something I don't believe. I don't claim it to be something that's authoritative. I don't claim it to be something that is worthwhile. And so I just consider it to be foolish. Unsaved people cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because those things are appraised only by spiritual people. What's that saying? It's saying that if you're here this morning and you've never seen your heart changed, and had your heart come alive in Christ, and you've never had a new heart, and you never had a, an encounter with Christ in which you said, Lord, I know I need to have a change of heart with you because I see what my nature's like. I go my own way. I need you to give me a new heart. I need you to forgive me. I need to enter into you on your, on your um, terms and come to Christ, the one who died in your place, the one who gave himself for you that he might give you a new heart. And oh, what a change that makes. I was talking with someone just the other day who was asking me about uh, what suggestion would you have for someone who wants to read the Bible and they weren't very interested. It's hard to read the Bible. It wasn't something they really found to be something very interesting to them. I said, well, it's good to have a good translation that's more modern and makes it easier to understand. But bottom line is what? If you're not saved, if you don't really know God, the Bible is boring. Even if you're saved, it can be boring. We need God, his spirit, to give us a desire to know him and to know his word. I was listening um, to R.C. Sproul a while ago. He recently died, and uh, a great theologian and Bible teacher of our day um, was talking about his testimony. When he came to know Christ as a young man, he talked about he had a voracious appetite to read the scriptures. He had never read them much before that. And once he came to know Christ, and Christ had come into his life and changed him, he says, I couldn't put the Bible down. Why is that? It's because he had a hunger and a desire to know God. And maybe that's where you are. Maybe that's why you're not seeing revival in your life. Maybe you've never come to know Christ in that new and real way. Well, my friend, you need to have a new mind. A mind that is given to you by God that comes with thinking about 
God and what he's like. John Stott years ago wrote a classic book called Your Mind Matters. It's a great book. What he talks about here is he says the Bible sets forth the importance of our minds in Christian living. He said, worship is anchored to proper thoughts about God and his attributes, his character. Faith is built on truth, the foundation of truth and facts which must be understood. Holy living relies on what? Having an accurate biblical understanding of what the standards of God are. We talked about several weeks ago. What is God's will for you? It's to live in sexual purity, uh, not in sexual immorality. You need to understand what that is and the elements of what godliness is as set forth in the scriptures. Evangelism requires a grasp of the facts of the gospel, an understanding of what God has done in Christ for us. So it's no wonder that Paul prayed for the believers there in Ephesus. He prayed that their hearts of believers would be enlightened to understand the hope of our calling in Christ. In other words, that we'd have greater desire to what? To have the word of God filling our minds, filling our thoughts, helping us understand ourselves, our world, people around us. And notice what he says in verse 34. Not just to have facts stored up in our minds, but that we might be a people who desire to keep God's word with all our hearts. Wholeheartedly, not in a half-hearted way. So the gospel is understood, not with just a one-time impact, but an ongoing process of renewing our minds that we do again and again and again. And I'm telling you, unless you keep reading the word, that will never happen. Unless you try to memorize the word, that will never happen. Unless you meditate on the word, that will never happen. You've got to put your, your gadgets down. You've got to turn the screens off. You've got to have time in which the word of God is being impacting your thought life. Notice also that the revival is only going to be sustained if we continue to seek God for help in applying truth to every part of our life, including verse 35. He mentions his feet. So it's the mind and our feet. He says, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. I think he's talking about the direction in his life. What he's pursuing, the general pattern of his life, and he wants to follow the biblical patterns of Scripture. So the psalmist prayed that God would not guide him in a new direction where nobody else has gone, some kind of newfangled idea, but no, I'll go, I want to go walk on those familiar, well-traveled paths where many other godly people have trod. I remember I went with uh, one of my favorite memories of visiting our son, Eric, in Edinburgh, Scotland, is that there is a very pronounced rocky outcropping of a mountain right there uh, at Edinburgh. And um, he and I walked up that, and it's clear that you can, I mean, you can sort of approach it from all different kinds of sides, but as we walked it, we just walked these paths. There were clear walking paths. There were several of them, but we stayed on the path, and you come to an intersection, you can go this way, go this way, but we just walked those paths knowing that what? We're going to get to the top of that hill. And sure enough, we did. And the point is, some people like to go and blaze their own trail, but there's nothing wrong with following the familiar, highly tra well-traveled paths that other people have trod in the Christian life, which are like this. Childlike faith 
meditation on the Word of God, where you keep thinking about it and pondering it and reviewing it in your mind and thinking through its implication in your life and comparing it with other scriptures and time in prayer, taking time to stop doing what you're doing and talk to the Lord and having a conversation with Him about what's happening in your world, in His world in that sense. Serving Christ in the local church, participating in fellowship in God's household, worshiping Jesus Christ. These are all basic, well-worn paths, but that's where we need to be continuing on. Jeremiah 6, 16 says this, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Not in the dramatic, ecstatic experiences, but in just living to honor Christ in the everyday patterns of life as we've set them forth. These are the ways in which we can continue to grow and sustain revival. Another area of application has to do with our hearts. You'll notice he says here, incline my heart to your testimonies, verse 36, and not to dishonest gain." Here's an honest admission that the psalmist knows. There are certain areas of his life he knows that he has a strong bent toward temptation. He's struggling. There's a choice he has to make between the Lord and between what he really is longing for. In this particular instance, it looks like he's being tempted to steal things or perhaps he needs more money or wants more money. Jesus reminds us, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and hate the other. No one can serve God and money. I think what he's talking about here is he's talking about idolatry, the fact that we all have idols in our hearts. And uh, I won't know if I have time to read you all this, but there's a fascinating book which I would commend to you. I think I've mentioned this before. Tim Keller on uh, the counterfeit gods. He talks about idolatry. He says basically there are three. He says, how, how can we know what is the, the idols of our hearts. He says, well, there's three easy ways, usually, to discern them. One is to look at, what, look at our imagination. What do you think about when you don't have to think about anything and your mind sort of goes into some sort of solitude and you can have your thoughts effortlessly can go anywhere they want to go? What do you daydream about? What comes up, what comes up on the screen of your mind? Uh, what are the potential scenarios about, that you think about with your career advancement? Are there material goods that you dream about, some kind of dream home or a relationship with a particular person? What is it that you dream and sort of have imaginations about? That might very well be the thing that is your idol. Now, that's not to say that everything you dream about is an idol. I'm just saying that's potentially one way. The next one, of course, he says is money. He says, the way you spend your money oftentimes reveals where your treasure is. That's what Jesus said. So our money flows most effortlessly toward our heart's greatest love. That's a good line. Your money flows most effortlessly toward your heart's greatest love. In fact, the mark of an idol is that you spend too much money on it. 
as Paul would say, if God and his grace is the thing in your world that you love most, you will give your money away to ministry. You'll give your, way, your, your money away to charity. You'll give your money to the poor in astonishing amounts. And most of us, however, tend to overspend money on clothing or our children or on status symbols such as our homes and our cars, which oftentimes reveals another idol in our hearts. And then the third one is this. I thought this was fascinating. He says, if you're a believer and you're someone that has, you know, uh, time you've been spending in the Word of God and you've professed faith in God and you've been uh, following God, you know a lot of doctrine and truth. He says, what are you really living for? What is your real God, not just your professed God? A good way to discern, as he says, is to how you respond to unanswered prayer. Unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes. If you ask for something from God and you don't get it, you may become sad and oftentimes disappointed. And then you go on. Then you go on. He said, hey, that's life. Didn't work out the way I was hoping sometimes. And you move on. Okay. Then that's not your functional master. But when you pray and you work for something and you don't get it, and you have explosive anger or deep despair, you may have found what your real God is in your heart. Now, why am I talking about all these matters? Well, it's because the psalmist realizes you need to keep helping me with your word to discern what are the idols of my heart so that they not become the false gods I'm worshiping and devoted to rather than you, the true God. And we all need help in that area on a regular basis. Lastly, he talks about, again, his eyes, verse 37. So we talk about the mind, feet, our hearts, our eyes. He says, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. I think he's, again, focusing on, Lord, help me focus and see the things that really have value in life. Not empty, worthless things that fade into irrelevance. See, if you were on the Titanic on that fateful night and you have booked this ticket, assuming you're going to get from England to the United States and you're going to sort of take this luxurious ride on the, on the first time this ship has made its way over and, the, and uh, you find out that it's hit this iceberg, you hear that this thing has taken on water, they're putting the alarms on. Now, are you going to stand there as a man? Now, of course, all the women and children hopefully are going to make their way into the lifeboats. But as a man, are you going to stand there and just say, well, I'm going to be picking up souvenirs. I'm going to grab whatever I can find that's not nailed down because it'll be worth money someday. What's really of value at that moment? You might have a lot, you might have a menu from the Titanic with you in your hands, but you're going to drown and die in the water in just a few minutes. And I think sometimes in our world, we have so much stuff. We have so many forms of entertainment coming at us. We have so many things that are, are asking for our attention that in the bigger picture of life, how valuable is really is that? People that binge on a whole season worth of a show all on one time, they just hours after hours after hours after hours. I'm like, really? We didn't even have that opportunity years ago, and I'm glad we didn't. We need to get our eyes off of our screens more and more, I'm convinced, so that we might what? 
have eyes to see the glory of God in his creation. That we might have eyes to see that what? People are the ones who bear the image of our God. People are the one that God has a passion for and a heart that loves them. And have our eyes to see the sovereign hand of God in history. That whatever we're learning, we're seeing it from the understanding that God is working out his plans in the world. And eyes to see the grace and justice of God in the gospel. I want to challenge you sometime. Take, a, take some time and put away your gadgets for however long you think you can handle it. But I mean, try for a day. Try for two days. Try for a week. You say, oh, I can't do that. Okay. But try for a short time and say to yourself, have I really lost anything that's so, so valuable that I can't live without it? I'm not saying you have to put it away entirely, but I'm just saying we've got to find some way to find a balance between things that really are valuable and worthwhile and eternal versus things that are just temporal that just distract us and occupy our times too much. I'm not going to really explore this last point. I'm sorry, but I'm, I had so many other things I added into what I was going to say, but I'll tell you the point I was going to make. We need to be, if we're going to see this revival sustained, we'll be growing relationship with God, humble, teachable spirit, apply God's truth to every aspect of life, and then hold on to God's word for assurance to face doubts, fears, and skepticism. And then, of course, verse 38 is where he teaches that. But um, I think we all know that. We're going to inevitably run into difficulties. We're going to run into people who are difficult to deal with in our life. We're going to run into people who are not sharing the vision and burden and desires that we have. And there'll be moments where you're tempted to doubt, where's God? And so, of course, the psalmist is saying, I'm going to keep holding on to your word and your promises because there is nothing else that is a true firm foundation like we sang earlier. Let's pray. Lord, we know that it's one thing to talk about your word, to preach a sermon about your word, to sing songs about the word of God. But Lord, it's another thing to see the word of God planted in our hearts and in our minds, guiding us, having an authority over what we choose to do and not do, exposing areas of our lives that we oftentimes like to keep hidden. It is the word of God that can give us comfort and hope and point us to true forgiveness and provide us with a peace. Lord, I pray that you would use your word in a mighty way in our hearts as we go forward from this day. Help us to be a people who delight in your word. Help us if, Lord, we're here today and the word of God has been boring or irrelevant or we've never hardly ever cracked it open or read it. Help us, Lord, to begin to seek you by reading the word and saying, Lord, I want to know you. Show me yourself in the word of God. And Lord, for some of us who have gotten into the rut and who have not had a desire to read the word and we've become a people who are going through the motions, Lord, would you stir us up Give us a hunger. Give us a, a strong desire to pursue you by knowing you in the word. And may your word, Lord, apply to every area of our life. May it show us more clearly the wonders of who you are as our God, the wonders of our salvation in Christ, 
of what you're doing and to trust you more in any and every situation of life. Lord, reveal yourself to us, we pray, through your word. And may we have an ongoing relationship with you where we talk to you as we read it and delight in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.